Hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm. What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. This episode is supported by Soul Source. In addition to helping women regain sexual function across America, SoulSource donates hundreds of vaginal dilators a year to African women who are recovering from vaginal fistula surgery. Did it ever occur to you that Match.com has by far the largest database of dating and singles in America? Well, since 2010, Match.com has enlisted the help of experts from the Kinsey Institute of Sexual Research to conduct and publish a scientific study on attitudes and behaviors of single people of all ages in the United States. Today, my guest is none other than Dr. Justin Garcia, the executive director of the Kinsey Institute and the scientific advisor to Match. Dr. Garcia is a world-renowned biologist and sex researcher focusing on the evolutionary and biocultural foundations of romantic and sexual relationships across the life course. In other words, he's the guy. He's the scientist who knows the secrets of why people fall into relationships and if online dating has salvaged or sabotaged the whole process. The latest data from the 12th annual Singles in America study has just been released, and I cannot wait to hear where things stand in post-pandemic 2022. So welcome, Dr. Garcia. And um, I also want to mention you're my friend, so I'm going to call you Justin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, no, I, thanks so much. I'm no, to I be tell here. everyone that the best conferences in the medical community are the sex conferences. I'm specifically thinking of your conferences. And, and before we finish today talking about all the data, I am going to circle back to get you to talk about the incredible, incredible art collection housed at the Kinsey, Kinsey Institute, which is, of course, part of the University of Indiana in Bloomington. All right. So let's get started. But before we get to the match.com data, could you please spend a minute just talking about the legacy of Alfred Kinsey and how he changed sex research in America? Sure. And I'm so delighted to be here and uh, all your uh, wonderful listeners. And of course, uh, I adore Dr. Stryker as everyone else does. So it's, I'm honored uh, to be here. So the um, actually, I'm talking to you right now from my office here at the Kinsey Institute. Um, so the Institute and, and Dr. Kinsey is, so, so maybe we'll start with Dr. Alfred C. Kinsey, who is our founder. And uh, the, in 1938 here at Indiana University, he taught a course, uh, it was called the marriage course. It was this sort of sexual hygiene course on campus and it was team taught. And the university thought, well, wouldn't it be safe to have a biologist that can do the kind of nuts and bolts part of sexual hygiene and, and sex and, and marriage? Um, also taught with anthropologists and sociologists. But what happened was Kinsey started teaching this class and there were so many questions from students. It actually represented the very best of university life. As you have these courses, you realize there's gaps in literature and knowledge, and then you go and pursue some answers. His own background was an entomologist. He was a zoologist who collected over seven and a half million specimens of gall wasps. Um, and he applied Not everybody knows what an entomologist is. So. Yeah, sorry, I was like, Bugs. <laughs> Yeah, so an entomologist, he studied uh, wasps, insects. Uh, mm -hmm. So he was trained at Harvard in, in zoology. 
And he was interested in um, sort of taxonomy of insects, like what differentiates different species and why, and why they differentiate and wing size and antenna size. And, um, and he had this almost sort of obsessive collection. He wanted to have this massive data set to be able to make these comparisons. And then applied that same thinking to people's sex lives. So all these questions were coming up in the course. And he said, I don't know. No one knows. Let's get some answers. Um, and he always had an interest in sort of sexual reproduction because he was an evolutionary biologist, he was a, a zoologist. And uh, so two years into the class, the university president said, you can either keep teaching this class or you can do these, this interview study you're doing, but you can't do both. Uh, so then in 1940, really, he embarked on the start of one of the most ambitious sex research studies to this day. And they interviewed over 18,000 people. Uh, Dr. Kinsey himself did about half of those interviews. Uh, they would last anywhere from three hours to 18 hours over multiple days um, and became the core of what were known as the Kinsey Reports, two landmark best-selling books, first in 1948, Sexual Behavior of the Human Male, and then five years later, Sexual Behavior of the Human Female in 1953. So right before those books came out, the Institute in 1947 was incorporated as what was, it was then called the Institute for Sex Research, uh, to really protect all the data and the collections. The, the separate incorporation was to in some ways encapsulate all of the data and keep it safe from outside so you know from whether it's state legislature or um anyone else to really have a, a research center hub um so we still have that legacy but we do a whole lot of other stuff now well and it is extraordinary extraordinary the body of work and really how it changed um how we look at, at human sexuality i mean maybe he started with bugs but he sure did an extraordinary job of pivoting to humans and laid the groundwork for so much research that has been done since then. All right, let's get to the, the data, the match.com data. The new, the me, new data. Yeah. yeah, the new data, but um, which also based on lots and lots of questions, which is what, what it's all about is, is asking and listening. So I am going to ask you some very specific questions, but just as an overview, and you've been doing this for years now, of course, for this year, what was the most interesting or maybe unexpected finding out of all the data that you analyzed? Oh, gosh. Um, so so for the for the Singles in America study, every year we collect a, a national demographically representative sample of about 5,000 U.S. singles. So it allows us to look across age and gender and sexual orientation. Um, and, and there's often a lot we ask. It's a pretty long survey. Some things we trend, many things we ask new. Um, I think one of the big things for us when we looked at the data this year is what we're calling conscious daters. And um, what we found is that, you know, as people are emerging from the pandemic, they're also grappling with how to use technology in new ways. Um, there's sort of a lot of things going on at once. There's the economy, and we don't fully know how that's starting to impact dating. Um, but this pattern of what we're calling conscious dating is people seem to be leaning into singles, uh, leaning into dating a little bit differently and more. Um, so about 70% of our participants, um, not much of a gender difference, um, and ha uh, said that they're open to finding a relationship right now. And half, I thought this was really neat, half said that they're more eager to meet a partner than they were in the past. Hmm. That's a lot of people are saying there's something going on that they're looking for those partnerships. And, you know, early in my career, I wrote, I wrote a lot about hookup culture and casual sex. And, uh, and then I got old and I wrote about love and I, but I, um, we, we see that some of what we're seeing in the data is that it's not that people aren't interested in casual sex anymore, but they seem to be leaning in at this sort of national level, leaning in more towards first dates, second dates, 
interested in forming deep connection. Uh, one of my favorite findings, 49% of people said that they've fallen in love with someone they weren't initially attracted to, which means they're giving second dates a chance and third dates a chance and getting to know people. Right, but I want to ask you something about that because that popped out at me too when I was looking at some of the data. And, you know, if, if anyone who swiped themselves or knows someone who swiped, you know, they know the drill. It's like you take a look and if you're not attractive, it's a hard swipe to the left. So explain to me what has changed? Are people willing to swipe right on people that they're not physically attracted to? Because you, you got to give it a try to even find that you're going to be attracted to that person, right? Yeah. And I think I think what we're seeing is that people are, um, they're giving more a chance to understand a whole person. So in fact, there was this, uh, many years ago, one of the dating companies um, took pictures down. I think it was for 24, 48 hours. And what they saw was that messaging started to increase because people started reading the profiles more. And mm. you're right. There is this part of sort of instant chemistry and attraction that is important to our relationships and our love lives and our sex lives. But there's also a whole part of like what makes a meaningful long-term relationship. The trait that people want most in a relationship, actually in our study, I think it was uh, close to 95% of people ranked this in their top five, um, is someone that they can trust and have confidence in. Yeah. That's a lot more important than than looks. You do want someone you're attracted to, but you start to see that whole picture on the first and second date. You say, oh my gosh, you're funny, or oh, you're smart, or oh, you have career ambitions like mine, or oh, you want to travel to the same places. Um, that those things start to become the package of who you might want to have a, a relationship with, um, not just that instant attraction, which often doesn't take in those other factors. Many of us have been attracted to people that you say, oh, I couldn't have a good relationship with you for more than three days. Yeah. And so so that bigger picture, that takes time. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't surprise me to hear that. But what does surprise me is that people are finding that on online dating because it is the, the swipe right, the swipe left, and you don't give it a chance as opposed to when you meet someone organically. You know, one of the other things that that jumped out at me is your colleague in all of this research, uh, Dr. Helen Fisher, you know, she stated that her post-pandemic observation is that the pandemic transformed daters. They've sobered up. So everything that you just talked about, is that what, what she was referring to? The fact that people are looking more at, it's not about instant attraction, it's about who this person is and what they're going to bring to the table? Exactly. And, and, and uh, Dr. Helen Fisher is a wonderful colleague. We've been doing this together for 12 years. And, uh, and I think her point is spot on that really we are, so many singles are really thinking about what their long-term goals are. And, mm -hmm. and it's not that we're not all still playful in our dating lives, but that we're thinking a little bit more about, um, we're finding that people are focusing more on mental health and dating, not only their own, but they care that the people they're dating take their mental health seriously. Mm -hmm. um, almost uh, four out of five singles told us that dating helps them learn about new people. They like that. And more than half said that dating helps them learn more to be a better version of themselves. It's like a more mature dating, which is interesting. Yes. I, I do want to talk a little, a little bit about the data of the more mature daters as opposed yeah. to, because I know what you're talking about now is kind of the overall picture of everything. But but the question I have for you, and it's kind of unfair to ask you to predict the future, but I will anyway, <laughs> because you've been at this for so long that you understand the trends. Do you think that this is a temporary thing or you think that this is really going to change dating behavior going forward? Yeah, I think, oh, God, that's such a good question. Hi, Lauren, you always ask me the hard question. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I think it's both. It's 
there are certain patterns here. I think we really are at a tipping point um, that these the dating technologies have become the most common way for people to meet romantic partners, um, more than from friends at a bar, from school, from church. Um, and we've been tracking that for over a decade. So these dating apps and websites are the most common way that people are meeting. At the same time, we hear all these reports of people who are um, struggling with them, that they are at times overwhelmed. And in some ways, that's because the platforms aren't really designed for the way the human brain makes choices and searches for intimate partners. So I think what's happened is a lot of the platforms have changed. They've integrated video dating. They're finding ways to slow people down, to not just swipe 100 pictures in an hour, to slow down and read profiles or, or just focus on a few people. So the technology is evolving. People have had this moment that we're saying, this is how everyone's meeting, but I don't always love how I go about doing it. And after the pandemic, I think all of us are realizing the thing we need, the thing that helps us survive that sort of uncertainty are close relationships. Yeah. So I think we're seeing a combination that, that will stay with us for a long time. You know, the other, the other question that I have is, you know, all of this is very interesting, but you have to wonder, okay, Match is the one who is driving this data. So I would assume, correct me if I'm wrong, that they're using this data to change their platforms and make it more user-friendly, if you will, and more successful. Is that, is that true? It is. And, it's, it's, uh, and there's two parts that I want to bring up. One is very early on when we started this collaboration in 2010 with Match, and they've been such a wonderful partner. They fully fund the study. Uh, we said, you know, if you want to do a real scientific study, um, the best thing to do is that the research team has to have the authority to roll out the results, to publish them in academic articles. So we've published over two dozen papers from the single study over those wow. over the, the past decade. And um, but that there really can't be interference from the funder and and from the, you know, even though Match sort of organizes the study and they agreed to that very early on. Um, so we don't have a case that like the research team never feels like we can't talk about any of the findings. Right. You can say the bad stuff. You can say exactly. the things that don't work and the negative things. And that's great. That's been part of the process of, under I mean, like we did a study last year on unsolicited genital images, so-called dick pics being sent. And, um, you know, that's happening on these platforms. And how do we better understand it? But a lot of the data you see in match commercials on the website that they're using for the platform, you know, they quickly updated how they use video chat dating. That's largely driven by scientific, the scientific by data. Your, by your data. That's so according to your data, um, I love this. You said eight in 10 singles say that overturning a Roe versus Wade impacted their sex life. Tell me more. Oh, my gosh. Isn't this? Uh, uh, and I think last time I saw you, we were starting to talk about this. And it was um, it's really interesting because there's not great data on. So there's certainly a lot of stuff on how we can think about Roe v. Wade and abortion legislation. I mean, you, you know this actually way better than I do, is how that impacts uh, people's sexual lives, their reproductive health, their overall well-being, um, that, uh, and how policy changes can impact that. We, but we knew less about how it's actually impacting the sex lives that sort of uh, precede some of those issues and, and those concerns. Um, so, so this was an opportunity because we collect every year, we were going to do this big study. We could kind of, kind of jump in there. Um, and I think it's so interesting that so many people are saying that this is going to change some aspect of their sex and dating life. Um, part of that is conversations that people want to know. They want to know very early on, you know, what's your opinion on, on 
uh, Roe v. Wade or on abortion or what happens if we got pregnant or um, so I think the conversations are happening a lot sooner um, mm-hmm. right now. Uh, but people also use it as a measure of your views on other things, right? That you, it becomes the witness test. Yeah. And the thing I'm really interested in is, uh, you know, there were these studies years ago that uh, when, uh, particularly in young people, they were mostly, when people use condoms, uh, women in particular, if they've had sex with a male, con- with a male partner using a male condom, that orgasm rates can be a, a little bit higher. And it's at first, a lot of folks thought, well, isn't that counterintuitive? Aren't they? Not everyone finds these comfortable. And but you know, it's, as you know, it's also it's a psychological sense of safety that or, or protection. And I think what we're seeing now is the reverse of that, that sex feels it's heavier. It just feels heavier for all of us right now because of the potential consequences, not just of an unintended pregnancy, but also that the health issues that can be associated with any pregnancy, mm-hmm. that it just feels riskier. All of it feels riskier. That's going to weigh on things like pleasure, uh, I think, uh, and on on our sex lives in ways that we're just starting to understand. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, it, if you talk about what you were talking about earlier, is that people are really paying more attention to to mental health, to self care, and I can't think of anything that's more important when it comes to mental health and self care than feeling safe in a relationship, safe not only medically safe but emotionally safe. And the idea of not only do you not feel safe with someone who doesn't have the same political views as you, but the reality of do you feel safe having sex with someone that if in the chance that you did become um, inadvertently pregnant, that you'd be out there on a, on a life raft by yourself because this person would not support your your choice. So that was interesting and also heartening for me. So I want to I want to pivot a little bit because when. I know you've been on the media a lot talking about all this stuff and you get asked a lot of questions, but I am willing to bet that in general, people are asking you more about relatively young people that are dating the twenties, the thirties. And, and certainly while I do have all ages listening to this podcast, the um, majority of the women who are listening are over 40 or 50 or 60 or 70. And I know that you looked at all ages. So I'd like to focus for a little bit about the trends and findings in women who are over 40. So can you make any just general statements about that? And if it's different than in the younger women? Uh, Sure. So, um, we found a couple of different patterns throughout the data set. We can kind of look at age differences uh, and age effects. It's one of the great things about this data set is we have all these different demographics. Um, and over the years, we've done some studies on aging and sexuality. Um, we've done studies, uh, as you know, and I love that as you bring up on this podcast a lot, is that people, you know, as we age, we still have sex lives in all sorts of ways. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and often richer sex lives than when we were younger. In one of our years, we found uh, both men and women said that their sex lives were much better than they were young when they were younger and that their relationships were better also as, than when they were younger. As you learn, you learn what works, what doesn't, what, <laughs> what, um, what, what mistakes you're even willing to try and make. Um, so in, uh, a couple of things I can think of is um, women, particularly uh, we found that 34% of women had dated someone 10 or more years older than themselves. Uh, was that across the board or was that more in the women who were 40 and over? So more of the 40 and older women had uh, experienced the sort of the bigger age range, the 10 older and the 10 younger. Um, Mm -hmm. In part, that's because if you're going to date 10 younger, you got to kind of hit a certain age before you're legally doing it. um, But we also, so we found things like that. We also found that, um, and we could talk about single parents or some stuff on single parents. Um, We found that uh, particularly in women over 40, 
that uh, women over 40 were happier and they had better mental health and they were more content with themselves. Um, they uh, knew more what they wanted in a partner. Um, and they actually seem to be having the best sex compared to younger women. So, yeah. um, but then they also, things. you know, that, that brings up the question is, as a sweeping generalization, are women over 40, are they looking for a lifetime companion? Are they looking for marriage? Or are they just looking for great sex and to just be with someone? Yeah. Um, I think it's both. And I think it's it's hard for any of the demographics to say, um, in that case, what the patterns. But what we're seeing, I think what it is, what we're seeing is, and there's a couple of other effects there, whether or not you already have kids, whether you want more kids, or there's still um, those things going on in people's lives. But particularly for women 40 and over, um, also in some ways for men 40 and over, we're seeing a desire for partnerships. But I think... You know, I think in the past, people would often say you move to a point in your life and you really think about commitment and, and, a, and a companion. And what we're seeing in the data is that's not just what people who are 40, 50, 60, they don't want just a companion. They want a companion and a sex life on average. So yeah. we're, we're from finding people are finding ways to do to do all of that. Um, but as people get older, particularly as women get older, they seem to see the value of long term relationships as companions in life. Um but, but not necessarily marriage. Exactly, not necessarily a marriage. And we're seeing that in other data, right? The sort of rise of cohabitating or dating. People today are in dating relationships or engaged relationships for much longer than just a few decades ago. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you mentioned briefly is the whole issue of being a single parent and dating. And certainly far more in the 40 and 50-year-old demographic than in, in young people, you're going to see a lot more women who have either kids or teenagers or young adults that are still very much part of their lives. So what kind of trends did you find in the new data on uh, people who are single parents? Yeah. And it's uh, we've done a few studies on single parents over the years. Um, and one, and for this year, what we found, and what's interesting in the last two years, there's been so much on single parents match actually created a new, an interesting case of how data drives the industry behavior. Um, we were finding such interesting thing about things about single parents. Match created a new uh, app called Stir that's focused on single parents. Hey, what is it? What is it called? I missed that. Uh, Stir, S T I R. Stir. And, okay. <laughs> and it's uh, and it was for single parents in part because we know what we were seeing in the data is a lot of single parents want to date other single parents. They uh, they're often interested in someone who kind of gets that as a different lifestyle in all sorts of ways, different right. responsibilities. Um, we did. A, we published a study a few years ago with my colleague Peter Gray from the single study that so single parents with young children compared to singles with much older children, like 15, 18, um, they actually had more sex and went on more dates. And that seems counterintuitive at first to say, why? And in some sense, what we think is that they were more motivated for when you have young kids that can be so consuming in your life that you're a little bit more motivated for a romantic and sexual partner to have sort of that adult part of your life. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas as the kids get older, you're kind of, you know, more things, you get a little bit of freedom, but aren't necessarily so eager to find those partners. Um, but we also found that so singles are interested in dating other singles. Um, uh, there are some that were really looking just for a partner uh, and to remarry, but a lot of them were talking about they wanted, you know, meaningful sex life. They wanted kind of adult lives yeah. and their relationships became a, uh, uh, a part of what they thought of as a holistic, healthy um, uh, life as a parent. 
Yeah. I don't know if you if you looked at, at this, but did you look at um, deal breakers? You know, is there trending in terms of things that people say that it's an automatic swipe to the left if someone has certain traits? Is that do you, do you even look at that? Um, we did. And we've over the years, we've looked at different ones on sort of what we think of as the deal makers and deal breakers. What are the things that drive us and and keep us away. And what's interesting is we often think about sort of psychologically, we think about deal makers as the things we really want in a partner. But we know that sometimes you really meet someone and you say, well, I really want, I really want someone who's a tennis, I could play tennis with. This is my own relationship. with, and I really wanted someone I could play tennis with. And my partner golfs and I play tennis and we're just totally happy and we play, play different sports. So you kind of find things that, you know, maybe really aren't that important. But the deal breakers, the things that really result in almost a repulsion effect, those are pretty hard to modify. If you have something that you say, I can't, this can't work for me, those can be hard to kind of get around. Um, so there's sort of different psychological processes for the deal makers, things you want, the deal breakers that, that almost can upset you. The big one that we're seeing this year is politics. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. That does not <laughs> surprise me at all. Yeah, and it's uh, we saw this spike also in um, in 2016. We saw a big politics spike. Um, so every year we ask people, are they willing to date um, uh, what sociologists call homophily? The idea that we tend to date people and marry people and have sexual partners, on average, who we are of the same race and ethnicity, religion, socioeconomic background, tend to be attracted in, in the broadest sense to people who are similar to us in, same, in some way. But over the many the last decade or so, people are more open and are practicing more dating of people of different race, ethnicity, religion, right. economic background, region. Um, but political orientation, particularly in 2016, that was the great new divide. That was like, you know, like I could date someone of any race and religion, but not of a, not a, not a Republican or a Libertarian. You know, I, I have to admit, I have a, a single daughter who's dating and she's with someone now that she likes very much. And he's from a very different background and a different religion. And the only question I had for her, was he a Democrat or a Republican? I mean, that was it. You know, is he yeah. nice to you? Um, does he treat you well? And what are his politics? And that's from the mothers. So you can you can only imagine. But, you know, the other thing on a, on a personal level is, as you as you know, Justin, I'm, um, I'm married for the second time to, to Jason, who, you know, and, and have met and who, you know, I adore, of course. And I did not meet oh, him in line. <laughs> I met him. It was a fix up. But the way that we got fixed up was someone said to me, um, tell me what you're looking for. And my response was, how about if I tell you what I'm not looking for? If you find someone that doesn't have any of these deal breakers, then I will go out with him. And and one of them was, I will say, politics, because I feel pretty strongly about my politics. But yes, yeah, so, you know, <laughs> that makes absolute total sense to me, which... Yeah. And you're not alone. In our sample this year, 58% of singles said that a deal breaker, if a, a potential partner isn't open-minded on political issues. Um, and so they might be open to uh, what we're seeing in this year. People are open to maybe different parties, or they can say, like, I get that if you have this view on the economy or this view on, um, you know, certain aspects of politics, but it becomes a proxy for views on all sorts of other things on, right. on you know, and well, we I talked about Roe. I mean, you know, is a sweeping yeah. generalization. Yeah. If you look at the people that are not pro-choice, it is not always, there are certainly exceptions, but yeah. it is 
the Republican Party, the far right Republican Party that is not going to be pro-choice. And you have to be okay with that to be with a partner who feels that way. The, the other thing also that I know you do look at, which actually surprised me that you looked at it, but it's interesting, is the economics of dating and how that plays into the whole thing. So could you talk about that for a couple minutes? Yeah. Um, so we found actually 30% of singles this year said that in some ways inflation um, had made them more eager to find a partner that was financially stable. Um, or, uh, and I can think just, you know, friends of mine who are on the market, dating market again, and they're sort of third, particularly those in their thirties and forties. Um, so which partly influenced some of these questions we're asking. A lot of people are asking, you know, do you have school debt? Do you have medical school debt, grad school debt? Do you have, um, you know, do you own you ho- your home? Are you, um, so, so things that I think, you know, when I was younger, we all, I would always say, you know, you don't talk politics or finances on, right. and now people are asking them on the app before the first date or on the first date. Um, uh, we found about a quarter of singles said they're more appreciative of frugal people. Um, How do you ask that? What do you say? Do you know what do you do you like? Do you have money? Do you like to spend money? How does that even come up as an initial? And one of the things I thought was we were hilarious. Helen and I really laughed on this. Is we asked people if um, like what about if someone brought a coupon on a date? And you know we both kind of were of an age demographic. We almost kind of cringe when you think of it. And then you say, well, but actually. Given the difficult economic time, people who might say like, oh, let's go here because we can get a special or the wine is half off or the yeah, it's Monday uh, night half off for wine bottle of wine is. <laughs> yeah, that people are actually saying, well, actually, you're 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 thinking smartly about how how we can use our finances for things that we can stretch it longer. Um, so more people are open to that. And da- part of it is because dating is um, dating is expensive. So we found that. Um, Daters in the U.S. are contributing over $100 billion in their dating lives. So when you look at, so over a third of the adult population is single. Um, and then we look at just those that are actively dating and what they spend. And then we, we sort of multiply that out for the you know, over 100 million singles. Um, that's an enormous impact on the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. Um, people are spending on average singles are spending about $130 a month um, on their dating lives, whether that's app subscriptions or, you know, they're getting their hair done or whatever those things are, new clothes, paying for dates and, and, you know, what kind of restaurants do you choose if you go on a date or where do you get your cocktails? Or or who pays for that first date, the man, the woman, or they split it? Oh gosh, I love it. So in heterosexual pairings, um, traditionally a lot of men will still try and pay. What we find is, and in part, um, what we found is for both men and women, a lot of times women will offer to pay in, in heterosexual, uh, dates, they'll offer to pay, but they also, part of that is because they want to be clear that there's not an expectation that we're going to kiss or that we're going to go on a second date or you're coming back to my place, that many, particularly young women often say, if I let the guy pay, I don't want him to have a sense that I owe him something. Yeah. But a lot of men say, I want to pay to make it really clear that this is a date and we're not just friends. And I wonder if there's a difference between, again, the, the younger daters, the 20, 30 year old crowd and the 50 plus crowd, which traditionally comes from a generation that the man always paid for the first date. Exactly. You're exactly right. We did find a generational effect that younger people in particular, particularly young women, are a little bit more conscious of if a guy pays for that date, that can come with some baggage. And I'm not willing to let you take that. Yeah. Take on, I'm not willing to take on that kind of baggage. <laughs> Whereas a 50 year old woman might say, oh, no, you go ahead and pay, but don't think you're going to get anything for it. Exactly. 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. So this is the question that comes up all the time, just when I'm out in the world and talking to women is, you know, they're so frustrated. They're so tired of the online dating. They're tired of the constant swiping. They're tired of the disappointment. And I hear again and again, what's the point? What's the likelihood that I'm even going to meet anybody? This is a job. This is exhausting. Should I even bother? So, Dr. Garcia, how do you answer that question? Should women who are over 50 even bother? How likely is it that they're going to actually meet someone that is going to turn into a long-term relationship? Yeah. Uh, yes, I think we all should bother. And I think that there's a couple of things we can think about that are driven by data. So one is we know that most singles and sometimes older singles don't always do this, but sort of the younger, it's really interesting when we think about a cultural transmission or intergenerational transmission, we're so used to parents, grandparents teaching parents, teaching grandchildren that it comes top down that we learn from our sort of elders or past generations. But in the world of dating today, we're all learning from the young. We're learning from youth. Grandchildren are putting their grandparents on dating apps and websites. Um, people are telling their parents how to be better you know, in their, in their dating life, uh, how to communicate with new technology. So we, a couple of things I think we can do there. One is we know that actually most singles are on two to three dating apps at a time. Um, that's typical. It's normal. So we actually often encourage people to use different apps. They have different flavors. They have different people on them. The interfaces are different. Um, there's also apps that are for, particularly for certain age groups. So Match um, uh, also owns Our Time, which is for people 50 and older. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. For a few years in a row, it was the fastest growing uh, dating site uh, in the industry. Um, so a lot of people are, you know, in some ways you can find others of similar interests or experience or age cohorts. And to your big question, though, it does feel overwhelming. And it's because it is. But there's a catch to that. And I think... You know, people often say, well, the apps and websites, they're just so overwhelming. They can feel demoralizing. And my immediate thought is courtship has felt overwhelming and demoralizing for millions of years for humans all around the world. And that's not new. It's sort of part of being a sexually reproducing species. We engage in courtship. We form intense pair bonds. Romantic love is so powerful that the human animal has evolved to not make those decisions lightly. Uh, because of everything that's involved. I mean, any of us gone through heartbreak. No, right? You don't, you don't want to fall into these things um, uh, loosely. And so so it's always been a lot. The problem with the apps, is, as sort of we touched on earlier, is that often it's too much stimulate. It's too much information. But we can control that. Uh, now, the, the companies can't always. They, they just are providing, um, they're really meeting apps and sites. There are these platforms to connect with people of similar interests. You've said that before. Don't think of it as a dating site. Think of it as a meeting site, like going to a big cocktail party, you know, yeah. every night. Yeah, exactly. And if you go on this app and you say, I'm going to find the love of my life, no, no can do. The human brain is going to help you find, you know, the love of your life. But use the apps. I mean, my colleague Helen makes that point all the time. Um, but the um, the apps can really just help you connect with people of similar interests that, that you can get through those first stages and say, all right, do we, do we have enough here? Um, so one thing you can do is you kind of should be on multiple apps, um, but really try to engage in profiles. One of the things we know from some of our studies is that people often will move through too quickly. And um, the way I always think about it is I, I say, um, I used to go, uh, when we were closer to one, I used to go to Cheesecake Factory, the restaurant. And you know, you have this massive menu. And I always thought, oh, my God, there's so many things here that I want to try. And uh, but I, I got the same salad for the last 10 years. I've gotten the same salad every time I walk in that yeah. place. 
because I kind of get overwhelmed and I just, oh, I know what works. Um, and there's, but there's so many wonderful things to try. That happens in the dating market too. And we kind of can get so overwhelmed. We can't process all the information and make choices. And we often have a difficult time and you go on a date with someone and you say, well, you're, you're great, but, but you know, there's also like 3000 other people on that app. So you're not great enough. And that's, that's, you don't want to be in that place. You want to really focus on the people who are in front of you, whether you're messaging them, whether you're out on a date, whether you're getting to know them more, um, you have to kind of invest in these potential matches and these potential relationships if you want them to really go anywhere. Well, you know, we'd had a conversation a couple of weeks ago when we were out to dinner that, that really struck that same note, because what you had mentioned is that in many ways, some people who are in a small town who have fewer choices actually do much better at finding love than someone who's in a big city where there's, like you said, millions of choices, the cheesecake factory versus the only diner in town. So you're going to find something you like to eat at the only diner in town, right? Exactly. And one of my favorite experimental studies um, they gave people is they gave them fake online dating profi- uh, uh, profiles. And I think condition A, group saw six and condition two, uh, um, two saw 24 profiles. And a few weeks later in a follow-up, the people that only saw six, six potential options were a lot happier with their, they were more satisfied with their choices. Yeah. Because the group that saw more couldn't stop thinking, well, there was that other one. Should I have picked that other one? Yeah. And we do that in dating and it, it really prevents us from, Focusing on the people we're trying to get to know, um, because you just say, well, I'm not sure. Well, there's more people I could be not sure about, too. Well, I have have a very good friend who met a nice man. Um, She's 60 on online dating, and they dated for a little while. And then that relationship ended. And the first thing she said to me, you know, there was another one, and I couldn't decide between the two. And now I realize I should have gone with the other one. And he was no longer on the app, but she tracked him down. And now they're going out. And it's been wonderful. So, you know, oh there was gosh. an example of, okay, she made the wrong choice because there were too many choices. And, but she ended up with the person she was meant to be with. So oh, that's practical point of view. If so, if there's a 60 year old woman who's, you know, kind of dipping her toe in this for the first time, is she better off being on match or is she better off being on our time now? Can you do even know in terms of the data, what's the yeah. best way to meet someone? Yeah, so it's a great question. I, it depends a little bit on where you are, like like uh, geographically where you are. Yeah. Um, so there's some apps are more popular in certain cities, in certain countries, in certain. Um, again, I think it's a really good case of being on two or three apps that uh, can be really helpful. Um, and they have different. Some of the apps offer coaching services, as uh, as we know. You know, some of the some of the folks that are in matchmaking, either the professional matchmakers or even the companies now, the apps like Match mm-hmm. offers a coaching service. And the idea is to think a little bit more about, and it's particularly for people, I still remember giving a talk, um, I was giving a talk in New Delhi in India, and a man came up to me and he had, uh, his first marriage was arranged. And he was uh, on a dating app. He was on, I think, Shadi.com, which is one of the biggest dating apps in India. And he um, was the first time he was about in his late 50s, and it was dating for the first time in his whole life, even though he had been married, because his first marriage was arranged. He had never really thought about looking for someone. And Part of it was the things he was looking for was just a reminder of, well, dating's changed a lot in the last few decades. And I think for a lot of people who are older who are dating, particularly if they've been in relationships or other experiences, to sort of um, 
we all need a little humility of realizing like the dating market's changed so much. Yeah. And, um, you know, when you message people, you want to have it be short, one to three sentences. You should have a question that engages with their profile. You say, oh, and the wow, question should not be, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> not just what's up. To be no, a no, very, no. My daughter was coming. She goes, oh, my God, would someone ask me something other than what's up? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the best is one to three sentences and engage. You know, if you see a picture of them, you know, hiking in Machu Picchu, you go, oh, my God, I've always wanted to go there. Or um, I saw, you know, you have a helmet. What do you, you know, do you ride a bicycle or, or a motorcycle? Or you kind of really show that you've engaged with the profile. And what that means is that you probably really do need to engage with the profile to pull something out to ask a question. So it slows us down. It gets us to really not move so fast, engage in the profile, the potential person, um, look for opportunities for connection with them. Um, but to, to, and to your question, I think being on multiple apps works, if you're, if, particularly if you're older, our time, Match, um, and there's a lot of other ones, depends on which company. Um, uh, Match owns a, a lot of them. They're, the, they're yeah. on the market share, but... Um, there's a lot of different ones. They all have different um, flavors to them. Well, okay. You brought up flavors for the second time now. And <laughs> the one thing that we have not talked about is is sex. So I'm going to just give you one question on sex because in the Kinsey report that just came out, you talked about vanilla sex. So first of all, explain what vanilla sex is and how that came up as part of your data. Sure. So uh, actually, in that term, vanilla sex, it often comes out of the BDSM community, where they'll talk about, you know, sort of sex that involves uh, bondage, dominance, uh, uh, sadomasochism. And, Which is not uh, vanilla power, sex. It's power play. Yeah, it's the non-vanilla sex. And then they compare it to so-called vanilla as, um, you know, and sex, as you know, Lauren, you and I and, and our colleagues, we never like to use the word normal when we talk about sex. But more typical uh, sexual acts are often called vanilla Sex. So we asked this year about people in part because we were asking about different types of uh, sex lives and BDSM and rough sex and fantasies. Um, and what we found is that 57 percent of singles reported that they really enjoy the missionary position towards sex, which is uh, in some studies the most common. And was that equal for men sex. and women? I'm curious. Uh, pretty close. Fifty nine percent of men. Uh, I know where you're going with it. Fifty nine percent of men and fifty five percent of women. Um, and uh, in the sample, so pretty close. Um, and actually half of the singles told us they don't mind the same sexual behaviors over and over again. Um, and actually men were a little bit more likely to say that they're okay. 54% of men and 48% of women said they're okay with the same behaviors over and over again. Well, if it works, um, it works, you know. If it works, it works. And I think that's what it is. It's that people sometimes find like, oh, this thing works for us. And, and we... Um, uh, so, so what was interesting, though, with uh, for missionary, you know, someone asked me when we were doing the study, like, isn't that bad? Shouldn't people be doing things other than missionary sex? I said, well, it depends if they're comfortable and if it works for them. And missionary sex, unlike so many other animals or primates, humans have sex facing each other. Um, and eye contact, there's a lot of eroticism that can happen and, and additional arousal with eye contact, facial expressions, talking, whispering. So the face-to-face -face sex is actually kind of a unique feature for humans in terms of our sex lives. And we can use that. Um, but we also ask people about the non-vanilla <laughs> sex. Um, and about a third said that they want to act out sexual fantasies. Um, uh, a quarter of people said that they like occasional rough sex. Um, and we've been doing some other studies not tied to the Singles America Project um, but some other research studies on things like rough sex and BDSM. And uh, that's going to be we, the next podcast for sure. <laughs> that'll be the next podcast. Yeah. And in fact, there's a whole piece that's really interesting medically 
about uh, people getting injured sometimes during rough sex. And that, that's another conversation. I know. <laughs> we see that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Do, do you think, again, I'm asking you to look into the future, but but do you think digital dating is here to say, stay or you think it's just a, a, a passing trend and our grandchildren are going to say, you know, I can't believe you met grandpa on a computer. Oh, my God. You know, what was wrong with you? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's I do think it's here to stay. I think in a bunch of ways, I think technologies are making it easier for us to find partners, whether that's um, someone for to literally an activity partner uh, whether it's someone to date, whether it's someone who has the same sexual interests as us. Um, there are certain groups that online dating appears to be safer for, so particularly gay men and lesbian women, uh, sexual minorities. Um, you know, I think we often, when we're in cities or college towns, we forget that there's a lot of places in this country, if you're a gay man or a lesbian woman, you don't want to go in a bar and pick someone else, yeah. and it can be unsafe. Yeah. And um, so there's certain populations, so we know that actually minority groups have used online dating at higher frequencies for the last few years. Um, I think it's here to stay because it's so much of our social lives are now involving technology. Um, I mean, even our medical appointments or telemedicine and so much of our lives now are taking place on our tech that it's a way to find people. I I do think, though, the big um, the caution there is we just have to be careful what people want. People ask us all the time, what's the best algorithm to find a long term partner? And there have been so many studies. There's one fairly recently by uh, psychologist Samantha Joel that looked at machine learning on how partners, how to match someone. No one's figured that out. If anyone knew, and that was, that was her point in that paper, if anyone knew the kind of statistical technique to know how to match someone perfectly, they would, this, this game would be totally different. There's so what much. What's the name of that book that they made into a movie? The um, Oh, now I'm forgetting. You know, where they found a biologic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the biological was, match. I know the one you're. I can't. Right, think of and it. now of course I can't remember the name of it. But I mean, it was exactly about that, and of course the whole thing imploded and was a problem. And yeah. it, and even that, there have been studies on looking at like genetic matching and uh, looking at the major histocompatibility gene complex genes that uh, influence immune function and mm-hmm. genes that influence pheromones and and how we you know whether we like the smell of someone. Even those studies have been they've been so what we noisy in the statistical sense, but. Yeah. There's so much about that interaction of when you meet someone and um, and that particular place and time that you meet them and where you are in your life and what it's, you I, I think where you are in your life, too. I mean, I always say my if I met my husband now, you know, that my, my husband when we were in college, yeah. there's no way I ever would have dated him. No way. Yeah. 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 So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you think it's this. I mean, I think Michelle and I, we met where, you know, we're here in Indiana. We're both from other parts of the world and we. And it just happened to both be here. Uh, and we sometimes think, like, what are the chances that we were both in southern Indiana? You know, I'm from New York City. She's from China. Like, how did we, yeah. uh, how did we <laughs> meet here? And there's so much about a particular time. But the apps really help us. I think what we're seeing now, and I really hope this stays. I don't know if it will, but I hope it will. That people are really seeing dating as a place to learn about yourself, to learn about others, to really get to know, to build relationships. It's, yeah. I, it's been in many ways what got us through COVID. We're close relationships. What got us That's through exactly. It's, it's about connecting, and we and we now connect with people differently. And I think what we got through, got us through COVID is is appreciating the importance of human connection. However, we make that happen, and I think you know to circle back to what we initially started talking about with a more mature dating, a more conscious dating is the idea of okay, yeah, 
of course, I want to be attracted to this person, but the connection is is really what's going to sustain the relationship. I mean, that's the secret sauce, if you will. Yeah. And it's so powerful what you just said. And I think I've been reading my our colleague, Michelle Druin's new book, Out of Touch. And um, what's interesting is she, she gave a talk recently uh, here at McKinsey Institute and someone asked about, you know, use of technology and we too out of touch with real sort of social interaction. And someone said, well, my kids play these computer games and I just get so upset because they're not connecting. And, and Michelle made, uh, drew and made this interesting point. She said, but she said, my kids did the same. And, but then I realized they were on their headsets and they were actually talking to their friends for two hours as they were playing this game and they were building social skills and they were learning how to cooperate on this team that they were playing over this video game. And I think for a lot of us, particularly as we get older, we look at some of these advancements and we say, this is terrible. You don't have any connection. But in fact, it's there. It's there. It just looks so different from anything we're used to. Yeah. So so you mentioned you are down there in Bloomington, Indiana. <laughs> and I have only for you, Justin, for no one else, I have made that drive down there. It is long. It is boring. It is tedious. But I will say this. What, what made it worthwhile was not only to go down and, and be with you and the other Kinsey folks. But, oh, my God, that art collection, the Kinsey art collection. I was blown away when at my private tour last time. So so talk a little bit about the Kinsey art collection and how people can actually see pieces of it with without driving down to Bloomington. Sure. Yeah, we have this uh, this gem in, in, uh, in Bloomington, about an hour south of Indianapolis, and uh, where the main IU campus is. And so the Kinsey Collection, uh, so as I mentioned, when Dr. Kinsey started the Institute, he initially had about 15,000 items that people gave to him, in some cases, to be a safe place for documents around sex and gender and relationships. Um, but the Institute today, it has over 600,000 items. It's the largest research collection of items on sexuality in the world. Um, and we have art and artifacts and um, book manuscripts and archives. So. We host scholars from all over the world who often will come and use the collections and also our, our resident researchers here. Um, and the art collection, as you said, our art collection, our curator, Rebecca Fassman, is brilliant. Um, and she works with Liana Joe, who oversees the entirety of all the collections, uh, who's also brilliant. And Rebecca has uh, some of the exhibitions are traveling for anyone who's going to be in Miami uh, in the next few months. We'll have, I'm going to be uh, there. Something. I'm going to be in the exhibition. There. <laughs> I'm going to be there. I can't wait. And... Uh, so uh, opening at the end of uh, November will be one with Emilio Sanchez's uh, drawings, uh, one a show, and then another show um, of this art artist, Austin Osmond Spare, a portfolio he created 100 years ago um, uh, called uh, uh, Psychopath of Sexualis, um, was the name of this uh, exhibition. And uh, so we'll have some things at the World Erotic Art Museum in South Beach, Miami. We have a, a gallery here. Rebecca often has shows that travel. But we also really encourage folks, follow us on social media. So Kinsey Institute on Instagram, on uh, Facebook, Twitter. We often post every Wednesday. We have a post of something from the collection. So we call it Art Wednesday. And it's um, an archive or a piece of artwork or a particular artist that we are honored. That um, you know, when we have things in the collection, it's a wonderful honor and also a responsibility to make sure that they're safe and they're curated and they're they're um, accessible to scholars and students. So we try and do that as much as possible. So if you can't visit us here in Bloomington, um, and if you can't visit one of our traveling exhibitions, you follow us on social, sign up for the Kinsey Institute newsletter, 
uh, and we'll share pieces newsletter. Of and I will put all those links in the program notes so that, that people can do that because um, I have to tell you that is one of the highlights of my week on social media <laughs> is when I get the the Wednesday art from uh, from Kinsey because it's not only beautiful and fascinating, but it's really important. You know, it's the kind of art that is very often not exhibited, but you know, like all art that is going to incite thoughtful conversation and a window into times that are no longer, you know, that, that are different than they were. So it's, it's, it's really a wonderful, wonderful resource. All right. Anything we're, we're going to, we're going to close now because we could go on for hours and we're going to have to do this again. But I know that you have a busy, busy schedule because you were on media all over the place talking about these new findings. Um, anything you want to say before we sign off? No, I think I thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. And I think my big takeaway, um, particularly from our Singles in America study, and particularly for <clears throat> a lot of your audience, I know, uh, are often later in, in their life, is uh, what we see in the data is that people of all ages are interested in forming relationships and sex lives, but particularly as we get older. And I think the big takeaway for me from all these years is it is perfectly fine and it is even expected by other people that you honor what you want in your dating and your sexual life. Um, people respect it. They expect it. Um, and there's no reason to not say, here's where I am and here's what I want. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And please check the program notes for all of those links. Okay, great. Thanks so much for having me on and see you soon. <laughs> I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. See the light